This episode of The Green Rush is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. For a long time, cannabis companies have been shut out of many financial and insurance opportunities. That has now changed as cannabis companies have an option that can change their company's bottom line. Berkshire Hathaway is exclusively partnered with Heffernan Insurance Brokers, and the first work comp dividend program for businesses in the cannabis industry is now available nationwide. Rates that are filed in states across the U.S. can receive up to 40% of your premium back. So if you're an MSO that would like to have the potential to receive premium back on your work comp, give Kevin Tarango at Heffernan Insurance Brokers a ring at 415-699-2022 or go to hefcan.com. That's H-E-F-F-C-A-N-N.com. Support Heffernan Insurance Brokers' efforts to strengthen the cannabis community and revolutionize how cannabis companies buy work comp insurance. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Ann and Phil Carlson are joined by Hillary Lynn, co-founder and CEO of Curio, a hands-on and complete mental health virtual clinic for ketamine treatment. In this episode, Ann and Phil sit down with Hillary to talk about how virtual care is paving the way to make mental health care more accessible. Hillary also discusses the need to reinvent the healthcare landscape by reinvesting entire systems rather than individuals. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Hillary Lynn of Curio. Dr. Hillary Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before we dive into Curio, we want to hear about your journey. How do you go from physician to uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, a, a psychedelics company? I love this question so much because it was a unraveling mystery, even to myself. <laughs> so I'll give you the medium version because the long version is very complex, but okay. I, yeah, <laughs> the, the beginning really came from me being an idealist. Like I've always been, I think it had something to do with uh, coming to America when I was a child and being an immigrant and really having to drive my own journey because my mother who, you know, I grew up with a single mom uh, really didn't have the answers, of course, because she too was an immigrant. So I had to find my own way. And I learned a lot from reading and stories. And I grew up an idealist. I went into medicine with the ideal mindset of being in a noble field and helping people. And I went briefly into oncology, actually. I'm an internist by training and board certified, but I went into oncology because that was the field where I felt like I was connecting with patients most when they were facing mortality and really looking at their lives in deep way. However, what I found in my training and practice was that doctors, unfortunately, don't have a lot of control over our own practice. We 
are but mere cogs in a big machine, which is the healthcare system. And the healthcare system is unfortunately driven a lot by poor incentives. It's no one individual's fault. Like I really, I really think it's a result of, you know, systems are too large for um, like humans to really control. And it's gotten out of hand, especially in the last decade or two. Um, there, and I'll talk about this a bit more later on, but we we are at the breaking point right now, at the point of collapse in healthcare. And practicing as a physician is no longer a fulfilling, joyful career. So I turned my eyes to innovation. And I knew that this also fit a lot of my personal desire to be more creative and to think outside the box. I've always been a self-starter and very autonomous and being in medicine traditionally as a academic, as I was particularly, there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape that I didn't really sit well with. So being a startup founder turned out to be the right move for me. I have a lot of colleagues who ask me about this because, you know, typically doctors go into being a doctor because they crave security. They don't like risk taking. But for me, it was the complete opposite. I saw it as a way to reinvent myself and my career, but also potentially reinvent the meaning of what healthcare looks like in America, in the world. So my dream was always to get to the bottom of that question and that big problem, not just, you know, I know a lot of people start companies to, you know, do something exciting, get famous, make money, um, even like, you know, just make something of their lives. And, and yet for me, I think both the challenge and the piece that makes it so rewarding for me is that I've always been driven by this deep desire to solve something really, really hard. So that's how I got into <laughs> and healthcare. What's, what's, yeah. the, what, what's harder than that. Right. Exactly. So, um, uh, so that's fascinating. And we're going to get into kind of this intersection of um, technology and healthcare um, and its respective places. But um, I want to uh, kind of get into uh, what Curio is and so how you found, um, you know, this this need and and what you're doing about it. I love that because I get to tell about the early days of Curio, where we were not actually a psychedelics company. We were focused on helping people understand their emotional being and building resilience and skills to maintain that resilience. So we looked a little bit more like a learning educational platform with coaching involved. And we entered the psychedelic space because I, first of all, went through extensive training with ketamine as a modality. And then I also, uh, I was just so intrigued by the research coming out and I felt like it was the right time. There's always a right and wrong time to start a business. And luckily for us, it was the right time for the field of psychedelics to start this type of company. And it fit very well with our team's interests and skill sets. So the way we pivoted into psychedelics was to understand our mission, which was to 
uh, be a holistic uh, innovator and provider of mental health care and using psychedelics as the modality to accelerate that care. So I say that because it means we are not married to any one psychedelic modality. And at the end of the day, we care mostly about long lasting emotional healing, growth and change for our patients. So we're not a we're not a particular, you know, product. We're not a particular um you know, a thing to sell or we're not a particular drug or anything like that. We really are focused on that core mission. What we do today is a common conglomerate, honestly, of things. So the most outward facing obvious thing to people is that we deliver care with ketamine assisted coaching. We call it psychedelic assisted coaching treatment or PACT, uh, but we specifically work with ketamine because in the US that's the only legal modality that we have. So what that looks like is a person would join our platform and undergo a very thorough medical evaluation, and then they would initiate their coaching program. This is something that is, I find, particularly unique to what we do. I haven't yet come across any platform or clinic that does the coaching the way we do. So everybody is given a one-on-one coach, and they also are prepared and then guided through every single session. So even though we primarily provide virtual care, so people are taking the ketamine, which we ship to them in their own homes, we have a coach guide them through the process. This is partially to help with safety. Psychological safety is very important, not just the physical safety, and also to help guide them when things are kind of rough, like some people may encounter challenges or anxieties or fears. Luckily, it's actually rather a small minority that, you know, ends up dealing with something that they feel uncomfortable with. But then we are there and we're present live to help guide them towards something that is more manageable. And then after. Huh? I was just going to say a quick question. So the coaches, are they actually at that the person's house? Like how does. We currently do it virtually for the majority of our members. So there are some who have in-person coaches with them. And that's because of the particular uh, patient population. So the example I'm thinking of is our palliative care population. Sometimes they have a in person, um, you know, social worker with them or a death doula or a palliative care physician. Okay. All right. So yeah, that I was just wondering, you know, the, some of our listeners who are, that are, you know, tuning in, they'd be interested in potentially having an at home psychedelic assisted coaching treatment. So how would, how would they get the process started? Mm-hmm. It's very easy to get started. You sign up on our website, joincurio.com, and there's a self-serve uh, first point of contact intake, and you go through an assessment. Um, and then if the screening looks okay from that initial assessment, you move on to the medical assessment. So you'll have a live a medical visit with a physician on our team. Uh, we are all physicians on the team, and we then tell you if you know you would be appropriate for ketamine-assisted coaching care. And after that, you would do the coaching initiation. Uh, so, 
you know, you, you, you say this, you, you get this treatment um, or, or you see an in-person, you see a, a patient in person. Um, is that, that, or is that virtually or you do, yeah. you do it like live in person in your practice? So, so primarily we do live virtual visits. Okay. However, I know that this might be on people's minds with the change of the legal system with the end of the public health yep. emergency. Yep. Yeah, that's I where I was go going. Go, do, yeah, no, exactly. go take it. Take it, Hillary. <laughs> okay, <Go. laughs> okay. So, so as a very, very quick primer for people who don't know, the Ryan Hate Act is all about uh, making sure that a patient who is getting prescribed a controlled substance has a physical exam by an in-person practitioner, a DEA licensed practitioner. And for us, what we are doing for that is we have a dual model. One is we do contract with physicians on the ground. So we have some physicians who uh, do in-person visits and that takes place in, you know, a, a more, it's a creative setting is how I will say it, as well as a more traditional setting. The more creative settings are, and some people will come in as groups to do evaluations or um, medical visits. And then in the one-on-one, that looks like a regular medical visit that you might imagine going to any person. We also have another modality that we are rolling out. We partner and affiliate with clinicians who have in-person practices. So that can be your PCP, or it can be an IV ketamine practitioner, or it can be a psychiatrist. Basically, it's someone who is DEA licensed. And we establish care in a virtual setting on our end, while your practitioner say that PCP is live examining you. And that dual intake uh, fulfills the requirement that the law requires, essentially. Your business is then um, you are able to treat the individual if someone, you know, is Googling, you know, or or listening to this podcast and saying, I want to check this out. But then on the um, almost on the enterprise side, you're able to work with healthcare providers in mm-hmm. adding this solution to their practice. That yeah, right? that's a great segue to our partnerships. We uh, care a lot about partnering not only with other psychedelic providers, but honestly, our vision is to bring psychedelics mainstream. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't feel like a mystical other alternative. It should feel like very much a validated, uh, legitimate modality that people can offer their patients. And so our first steps are partnering with very mainstream types of practitioners like PCPs and traditional psychiatrists. So eager to talk more about that with anybody, you can always reach out to us on our website there. And we'll make sure that we have links um, for both the, the patient side and for Sure. Uh, the the practitioner side because um, you know they're both very very important. Um, so I actually uh, I want to go back to the whole coaching thing because uh, like this is very interesting here. Like who can, who, uh, who can be a coach? Like how does how does that work? And like yeah, there's the, a lot of opinions, a lot of opinions out there. So we are, are you looking for a side hustle, Phil? <laughs> I'm not. Not right now. <laughs> I apologize. Go ahead, that's Hillary. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's like, I think um, to some extent, I feel like the world would be so much better if every single person 
in the world got training and educated about mental health, you know, quote unquote, first aid. So there's a level of this that I think is good for everybody to understand because you can help someone in your life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but beyond that coaching it right now is very ill-defined. And the reason is because coaching is not a licensed, um, you know, practice it's, it's uh, you can get certificates for it, but there's no medical license, for example. So right now there's a lot of training programs out there that teach facilitators, coaches and therapists and physicians alike, how to work with psychedelic modalities. What I find kind of interesting about it is that um, a, they're really expensive. And I think out of reach for a lot of people, um, you know, psychedelics are, is a nascent field and people to be quite honest, if you are a psychedelic coach trying to set up a practice like outside of any other um, umbrella, you're going to have a hard time generating business right now because it's so nascent and people just don't know where to turn. So I think it's a little bit, you know, sad and, uh, and maybe unfair to be charging a lot of people thousands of dollars for um, training, which is not you know, super validated, actually. So what our view is at Curio is, yes, it's great if you know something about psychedelics and, you know, maybe have gone through a prior training, but we train everybody who comes to us, regardless of if you are more of a health coach with like national uh, board certification, or, you know, it, you're maybe an RN who's worked inpatient, or if you're a social worker or a therapist, everybody has to go through a standard training. And, you know, we, we are learning all the time. So we're adding to the training that we give to all of our coaches. We are validating a lot of this in our research, which I realized I didn't even get to talk about, but curio science is a huge part of what we do. I would say equal to our clinical work is our science work. And one of the major studies that we're starting uh, right now actually is evaluating what aspects of the coaching modality we use are helpful and what aren't, what isn't. And I think, um, Nothing against therapy. I love therapists and I love working with therapists. And I think psychotherapy is necessary for a lot of our members. But psychotherapy is very ill-defined a lot of the time. And I think in in a lot of papers I've read, a lot of people use this crutch of being like, oh, patients should be supported by therapists. And then they don't further define what that means. I find that really frustrating. I think we should define what that means. And I have a very strong suspicion that both psychotherapists and coaches who are non-licensed professionals uh, can be, get training to fulfill the necessary pieces of facilitation. It's a different topic to talk about, you know, people who have deep traumas who may need the special expertise of a psychotherapist. But at the very basics, I think everybody should get validated training in certain modalities. There has been... The, oh, I was just going to say, as part of the training, do the coaches have to go through a treatment session? Right now, we don't require it of people because of regulations. Some people live in places where, you know, it's a little bit less legal. It's not legal for them to get a treatment. And mm -hmm. so we don't require it of people. But we do 
want people to understand the experience as much as possible. So even if it's not with medicine, they go through mock sessions as uh, members, they practice the sessions extensively, and they get extensive amounts of feedback. And again, like I keep alluding to it, but there's specific techniques that we make sure everybody is very familiar with before they are live with a member. There has been a lot of pushback, um, certainly in the press, but, um, you know, overall from um, members of the uh, psychiatric community, psychiatrists who are saying, um, you know, this kind of remote supportive element um, of ketamine treatment um, is 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 dangerous, a slippery slope. I mean, there's there's a bunch of different arguments here. Um, but I think, you know, your your point about like kind of looping back to the Ryan Hate Act, um, it all goes back to accessibility. Um, and and, you know, I, I guess what would be your comments to um, some of those uh, who are who are psychiatrists or behavioral health specialists who are reticent um, about this type of model? Yeah, I have multiple answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of uh, facets to that fear. Mm -hmm. I agree that we should be cautious. I um, I am really sad to hear that, for example, the rates of ketamine addiction seem to be going up, like street abuse are, is going up. And I think it's due to people who prescribe in a rampant manner, um, you know, not to toot our own horn, but we prescribe literally just like two doses at a time. And we're very, you know, uh, this goes back to our business model. It's not dependent on cutting corners. Our business model is actually based on the technologies that we create. So we're more of a B2B company. We're not really dependent on consumers giving us money and cutting corners in that way. So we're able to do stuff like that. I think there's companies and clinics alike who due to lack of time or lack of money or whatever it is they give people gigantic you know amounts of ketamine and it'll be like two months worth or something like that or one month and it's like a dose for every single day and uh, that's just honestly too much from a medical perspective that is too much there's uh, insurmountable risks that you know does not justify um, and it leads to diversion. And that's an obvious result of that. Um, so that's number one. The second piece of physical safety, I'm actually less concerned. And those who are familiar with ketamine know that as long as you screen a patient properly, they will physically be safe. It's not a very physically dangerous product. It will raise your blood pressure. It's not good for people who have you know, heart uh, problems, for example. So we're very careful about that. Uh, so there's a few things you can make sure of essentially in the upfront medical screening. Psychological safety, absolutely important. And this is where the screening becomes absolutely you know, imperative that you go through, not only do they have like a condition that is legitimately treatable with ketamine or a psychedelic in general. And then second of all is, do they have the social support? I think people mm -hmm. miss that a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. They're like, oh, like, um, because a lot of people with depression and anxiety, PTSD, they are isolated from yeah. their communities. And it's a sad situation, of course, but also, you can't just expect a ketamine treatment to work for someone like that because psychedelics in general are very suggestive. So if 
you just imagine a person at home by themselves with nobody to turn to, say they have no friends that they can even call uh, and they take ketamine um, and then say they don't have like a coach like we offer, they're just going to be lost and they might face some truly fearful traumatic things during their sessions. You need support around that, whether it's the professional support or loving people in your life, you need to have that support. So we emphasize that in our upfront screening is like, do you have people in your life that you could trust deeply? Like, do you have at least one person that you would be comfortable calling up in the middle of the night, say, if you're uh, scared about something? Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of social screening that I think not enough, you know, even traditional psychiatrists necessarily do when they give uh, these treatments. So we know that integration is one of, if not the most important part of the psychedelic experience, you know, where patients process and make sense of the overall experience. Can you talk to us about what the integration process is like when you're mm -hmm. using remote coaching? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And you kind of said it in your question, but there's an infinite number of ways to integrate. So I will specifically talk about the coaching version. And the reason is it's different from self-served integration, which is absolutely valid, and also different from psychotherapy integration. What we focus on are actions, practical actions that a person can take, because no matter whether you're going through a deep hole with your depression or if you're, you know, kind of just having a you know rough moment in your life, say, because, you know, something very stressful has happened, every single person who is suffering mentally or emotionally can benefit from lifestyle actions. And there are things like you know, improving your sleep, changing a negative thought pattern to a positive one, you know, recognizing that you're being hard on yourself, being more forgiving. These are coachable actions, thoughts, and feelings. And we focus on a lot of these. Everybody's different. So I'm just using those examples. But if I went across like all of our members, every single person has a slightly different coaching integration program. Um, I want to talk about, uh, you had mentioned, you know, your, um, the way that you prescribe is, you know, a, a couple of treatments of ketamine, two or, you know, maybe more, um, depending on the situation. But um, the goal of many of these treatments that, that we are talking about is not to make them habitual, um, is not to make them, you know, here's your prescription for the next 60 days, like, and indefinitely, um, like SSRIs. Um, so, you know, you guys have a goal of, of making every session as effective as possible. Um, so that patients can almost use the ketamine to, to treat, um, to treat themselves. But can you tell us about the long-term strategy to build this tech and, and clinical services to, um, push the general field towards lower cost, options for mental health care. Yes. And I hear in that a hidden question, which I get from investor types a lot. <laughs> They're like, how do we you have some investor types listening? So yeah. that's why yeah. I did it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I love it because I, I feel like founders should be challenged to find creative solutions. We should not strive to continue to build systems which incentivize illness, which is what most fee-for-service type models do. 
and so the way we as a company are structured to make sure that we don't end up in there is, again, we don't focus on uh, the the charges that a patient gives us as our main revenue source. Right now, that's our early stage, you know, revenue source. Like it's a small part of it, but it's not our long-term vision or goal to continue that in any significant way. Um, the the thing that we're building, or the multiple things that we are building, are tech solutions to enable uh, the care delivery that we are doing and we hope that other people will continue to do. And I think you are alluding to perhaps your the next question, uh, which may be about deep healthcare, which is something that I strongly, <laughs> strongly, strongly believe in. So to give background, so for those who are listening and don't know, American healthcare system right now is largely fee-for-service. What that means is a healthcare system, a doctor, everybody involved is paid per action taken. That might be a visit, that might be a procedure. And so you can imagine that incentivize health systems to keep people coming back. So that sounds awful, doesn't it? Like, I, I think it does. It's like, you, you want people strung on along for years and years on prescription refills, essentially, if you operate in that sort of system. Well, it's less about fixing the problem than it is treating the um, symptom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a band-aid uh, system. And uh, a lot of people have questioned psychedelics because they're like, oh my gosh, it sounds almost like a cure or like a long-term symptom management solution. How is anyone going to make any money from that? And uh, I'll leave the drug companies to answer that piece because I... I uh, <laughs> if only I think, there were just a couple million people who need yeah, yeah. mental health care. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think there's a huge population, right? So, and and you're right. Like I think uh, people, when they they say that, I'm like, you clearly don't understand how human experience works like you know we all have uh, mental struggles emotional struggles ongoing throughout our lives and yes my dream is to help people build so much resilience you can ward off any challenge forever but I understand too that that's highly unrealistic so we do our best so what we do on our platform is we extend the benefits of ketamine with the use of our coaching with the use of our education there's a lot of more self-serve educational content that we also give people but there's a deeper solution that is less patient facing less member facing the solution there is to uh, augment the clinicians augment the coaches uh, so right now, if you ask any doctor, most doctors absolutely hate EMRs. They absolutely hate the technologies that have been forced about in them. Uh, electronic medical records. Sorry. Electronic Just, yeah. medical records. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, because um, take a, an average, say, you know, slightly older physician, not even that old, like a lot of physicians who are relatively young still are very antagonistic towards technology. And the reason is a doctor typically is forced to see a patient every five to 15 minutes. It's insane, like actually. And then they're expected to do documentation, quote unquote, on their free time. And they that's so frustrating. Like you, you don't get paid anymore, but the healthcare system demands it so that they can get money from insurance payers, so on and so forth. So a lot of doctors really hate the electronic medical record. Um, I heard a statistic from a, a colleague of mine. She said like, it takes like 52 clicks to discharge a patient 
from the hospital. Um, and then, you know, even to close a single note, just a simple note that a doctor writes, it takes six clicks and you're writing like dozens of notes in a day. So that's a that's a lot. And the problem is technology that was created for healthcare professionals was created by technologists. I think that's the main problem. We need technologists and clinicians to either work together so seamlessly or actually be the same person. And that's a tall order. I know that because, you know, all of everybody here who is a doctor who's listening is like, oh, my God, I just got 10 years of education and training. And like, how do you <laughs> expect me to understand artificial intelligence? So um, but I'm here to say that it's actually not as difficult as, you know, I'm, and maybe it sounds right now. I'm a little bit perhaps um, at an advantage because my my partner actually is an AI scientist and um, almost in my free time, I'm always reading and talking and learning about um, a lot of these really cutting edge AI technologies. But the the ground level version of it is the better technology is and the more familiar you are and able and fluent with it as a clinician, then the easier your job actually is. Now, the trick is to build the systems, the tech platforms that work well with clinicians, not work against them. So we're in that boat right now. And psychedelics is the perfect sandbox and playground for that because it's a highly novel experience oriented modality of healthcare. It is a very holistic uh, format and methodology of healthcare, which is so exciting to my entire team, really. Like instead of being pill pushers, instead of being, you know, a revolving door for patients to come in and out, we get to learn about our patients holistically as human beings. And we get to help them in the best way for that individual understand themselves and heal largely with their own powers and tools uh, with our guidance to become better versions of themselves, stronger, healthier, happier, more fulfilled versions of themselves. And we're doing that largely with the assistance of very easy to use technologies that we're creating. I, uh, this also seems, this is a follow-up question, but this seems like a very uniquely American problem um, that we've created. I remember years ago talking to um, a physician who was um, Danish and they, and, and she's like, no, we are basically cradle to grave. Like we are the ones who manage care. We know, you know, everything about this person. Like we're the ones who are kind of quarterbacking it all. Um, is that true? Is that is this a uniquely American problem? And do are there other countries that you may know of that just do it better? Yeah, yeah. So yes and no. The one problem that I spoke about is a distinctly American one, but there's other aspects that I didn't cover yet, which affect every single country. So one is the problem of clinician decision making. Uh, so. So many doctors still practice without ever looking up anything they do. It actually, I think a lot of clinicians take pride in that. They're like, I know what I'm doing like so deeply that I don't need to look up anything. Um, that's a problem because there's new data coming out all the time about every single field. There's new research literature. There's new science. Every doctor who does 
any sort of practice should be checking and being up to date on every single research uh, item that comes out. That's really hard to do. And the best tool we have literally is called uptodate.com. Um, it was groundbreaking uh, when it came out. And now I think it's probably a part of most modern clinicians' toolbox. It's a very well done encyclopedia uh, for clinicians to use that's up to date in every major healthcare topic. It's not great for very novel fields. So there's zero section on psychedelics, for example. There's kind of a medical section on ketamine uh, for mental health, but it's it's really rough. So, but still a clinician has to set aside the time to look at a phone or computer to double check their work for this sort of information. There needs to be technology that enables a person to very fluidly access this kind of information real time or, you know, in the seconds that they have in between visits or, you know, just on an ongoing basis. So I immigrated from Taiwan just to give a counter example to the U.S. healthcare system. Taiwan is has a universal healthcare system and yet uh, they suffer from a lot of problems as well. They're slightly different. They don't have the problems of billing in the fee for service, but they have a volume problem because, you know, as you could tell, like uh, with universal health care in countries like Taiwan, Canada and the UK, um, everybody is coming into the office. Uh, doctors are paid way less. And, you know, they're, they're still very talented, but they're paid way less. And so, you know, they get burnt out for different reasons. And we like the whole effort around technology tools for clinician is also a way to address that burnout problem. So, yes, it's different for the American system, but it's a it's still a problem. There's still a major problem, no matter what country and system you go to. So one of our favorite questions that we like to ask our guests um, is our crystal ball question. You know, we're still early in the days of 2023. So as you look towards the rest of the year, what types of developments do you expect to see in the industry this year? This year, 2023 is going to be extremely exciting. Uh, it's a still another preparatory year, like I like to say, because uh, we are waiting for 2024 for the likely FDA approval of compounds like MDMA and, you know, synthetic psilocybin and so forth. But 2023 is still very exciting, A, because the mainstream population is learning more and more about what psychedelics even mean. We are maturing in our use of ketamine as a, a modality for interventional psychiatry care. Um, so everybody's getting educated. We are setting up more structures and systems to help both providers and patients uh, get better, more seamless care. So this is this is the year for that. And it's passing so quickly. At Curio, our effort is to better educate the audience and better educate not only about the benefits of psychedelics, but the risks and like how to address them in a very knowledgeable way. In 2024, uh, because of the very likely uh, approvals of the 
compounds I mentioned, 2033 is all about preparing for that. So getting up the systems in place for training practitioners and also the structures. So there's a lot of mysterious things like right now. So for example, you might've heard in Oregon and now Colorado, it's legal to you know use psilocybin in a clinical manner. But there's so many logistical hurdles still, like just to name one, since it's federally illegal, you cannot practice in a location in an office which uh, has a federal loan, like as a mortgage or something like that. So by nature, because so many of them are tied to the government, you basically have to own your office outright. And which doctor or therapist owns a clinical office outright? Like that's a lot of money. So, yeah, I think there's still logistical challenges that we're managing uh, throughout 2023. And that's very exciting for us. The last question that is my favorite question is, um, what's the story that you would love to see on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow or the Wall Street Journal or you know, San Francisco Chronicle? Like, what's that one story that is being undertold? in this industry? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think that we are not telling the story enough about how psychedelics can heal entire systems and not just individuals. Because at the end of the day, our individual suffering and the emotional travails that we have are so tied to systemic ills. And psychedelics can heal not only patients, it can heal practitioners, like healers themselves. It can also, if used the right way and, and in the way that I mentioned, start to create the beginnings of a truly holistic modality of healthcare, which is truly unseen in any real way anywhere else. I love that. I mean, I, I think that there's... Um there's just huge opportunity. I mean, certainly, you know, at, at the group therapy level, but, you know, I know that MAPS is doing some things in the Middle East and, you know, like if you could only get people to come together <laughs> and yes. like, you know, be, be, you know, as open with their feelings as they are under some of these treatments, I think we would be a much, much happier place. Um, oh, go ahead. I was going to say like, yes, humanity is overdue for, a spiritual healing, a spiritual emotional healing. And I say that from a per, like a very scientific, secular kind of a background, but we just have turned into such a antagonistic, angry humanity. <laughs> like, and, and it's like, it's very sad. Like even um, being a startup founder, I think a lot of people talk to us like, oh, what do you think about competition? I'm like, honestly, like, I'm not here to like care about competition. Like I want to build a collaborative world. Like I want to like make the pie bigger. I don't want to steal parts of the pie, you know, and there's I enough think, for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're growing it with this wonderful modality of psychedelics. Oh. Well, I love that. Hillary, thank you so much. Um, we really enjoyed having you on. Uh, we'll make sure to include uh, all of the links that we talked about in the show, including um, Hillary has a fascinating um, article on Medium, Medium about um, deep healthcare. So um, I encourage everyone to read it. We'll make sure there is a link in the show notes. Um, and yeah, let's go cure the world. 
Thank you so much for having me, Phil and Ann. Thank you. Our thanks to Dr. Hillary Lynn, co-founder and CEO of Curio. The website uh, for this company is joincurio.com, and you can check them out uh, on Instagram and LinkedIn, at joincurio. Uh, and we'll also make sure that we put a link uh, into that Medium article. Um, it really is quite fascinating um, on deep healthcare. So thank you guys for listening. If you'd like to chat with us, we're on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or email us greenrush at kcsa.com. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay, one take.